Pretty much last time we were on the Renaissance, I didn't finish. There's two more things I had to talk about. Um, I need to talk about two prominent individuals. Then I want to talk about the witch craze or the witch hunts. And then after that, I want to move into what I really want to talk about today, which is the spread of the, the Eastern Church. And so just by way of memory, the Renaissance was an intellectual movement where um, it rejected really medieval European Catholicism and um, not the doctrines, but in term, instead the method, some of the superstitions. It really called people to go back to the sources, Greek and Hebrew, and you know read original sources, translate them and stuff like that. And a lot of this ended up undermining Roman Catholicism, and it paves the way for the Protestant Reformation. Um, there's two key figures that I think uh, definitely, um, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? They, they just exemplify this. And so the first one is a guy who was actually against the Renaissance, um, a, a Florentine man named uh, Girolamo Savonarola, And um, Man, this guy, so his life dates are 1452 to 1498. He was a Dominican friar of Florence, and he preached against the Renaissance because, you know, the art had the nudity and things like that. And, uh, of course, he's like, this is all very uh, immoral. And this idea of people um, pursuing their own individualistic desires, he's like, this, this isn't the way. And so this guy ends up coming to power he claims he has a vision from God that um, France, which was a powerful kingdom then, I know it's hard to believe, but anyhow, but that France was going to invade Florence and, um, and pretty much overthrow the leadership there. And then it happened. And so there's a powerful family that ruled Florence called the Medici family. You may have heard of them. They flee. And then everybody in Florence is like, Savonarola said this was going to happen. So God must have spoken to him. And so the whole city says, all right, you're God's representative. God obviously speaks to you. He showed you the future. Tell us. Tell us what we're supposed to do. Uh, and, and at the same time, around the same time, the, the pope of the time, a very corrupt pope, probably one of the most corrupt popes ever, Alexander VI, uh, pope dates are 1492 to 1503. He told Savonarola, you need to stop preaching because he didn't like his message. And of course, all the fiery preacher said is this is just proof that this pope is a servant of Satan. And this pope was a servant of Satan. Um, and so he's standing up against a corrupt pope. He successfully predicts a French invasion of northern Italy. And so people believe he's God's messenger. He, he's preaching divine wrath and judgment. Uh, so people are frightened, and they're like, what should we do? And they agree to his monastic vision for the city. In 1496, they have this giant bonfire called the, the Burning of the Vanities, um, where people bring their pornography, their cosmetics, their gambling items, and they just throw them all in the bonfire. And then he tries to set up a democratic constitution. Now, of course, the people went along with this because they were scared. The political class does not like this guy. They want him gone. And so what's going to happen is the, the Florentine leaders want to get rid of the preacher's influence. In 1497, that corrupt Pope Alexander decided to excommunicate Savonarola and threaten to put Florence under interdict, which would mean nobody in Florence could get any of the sacraments in the church. But at the same time, that wasn't enough to get the people to turn against him. But since he was a Dominican, remember, the enemies of the Dominicans or their rivals were Franciscans. And so, uh, and so pretty much what, what, what happens with this is, uh, 
they, they were Franciscans. And so what happens is they're going to challenge him. They're going to challenge him to uh, ordeal by fire, which means like Dwight Schrute, you're supposed to walk through the fire and uh, come out uh, completely unhinged or, or unsinged is what I mean. Um, and the people were confident in him and he was happy to agree. He's like, you know what? I'll prove to you I'm God's guy. I will walk through the fire. Now, what happened to him is not the same as that happened to Peter Bartholomew and the Crusades when he caught on fire and died. This event actually never happened. Bad weather and a bunch of other facts. In fact, his enemies were stalling it. And then the bad weather hit and made it to where the event got canceled. And because it got canceled, people started saying, well, if he was God's guy, God would not have let it get canceled. And so they started to doubt him. His support dwindled. And once his popularity dropped a little bit, city authorities arrested him. They tortured him and then they burnt him alive at the stake. And so that is how his story comes to an end. Now, he was not a reformer because he was a Catholic through and through. He accepted Catholic doctrine. But the way that he challenged the papacy and how, if you look at his life dates, this is very close to Luther. Um, he was, in a sense, a forerunner of the Reformation. And of course, one thing that was kind of Reformation-ish about him is he was a Augustinian in terms of his understanding of God's sovereignty in salvation. Um, <clears throat> now, the next guy, far more important for European history, and just the Renaissance, is a Desiderius Erasmus. Um, a, 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 Christian humanist from the Netherlands. Uh, He's better known as Erasmus of Rotterdam because that's where he was from. Uh, His life dates 1466 to 1536. And he was the most famous, gifted, and influential of all humanists. This guy was the leading intellect, most famous, popular man in Europe at this time. Born in Rotterdam, uh, Netherlands, he's going to shape humanism into something that could actually change society. It's not just going to be an intellectual movement, but it could reform society. And some of these reforms are still felt today. Now, some historians claim he's the first thinker who was alive to see his own fame. A lot of guys became famous after they were dead because word spread slow, but now you got a printing press. This guy wrote 226 books, all of which had millions of copies collectively circulate. Two million copies of his works collectively circulated during his lifetime. So everybody knew who Erasmus was while he was still alive. Um, And so he ends up, because of who he is, he creates a new atmosphere in Western European culture. Now, it's interesting, he was born as the illegitimate son of a Dutch priest. A Dutch priest not living like a priest had a child with somebody he shouldn't have been sleeping with. And and so, in a sense, he's an orphan, but he ended up being raised by the brothers of the common life. Remember those... uh, those mystic movements I was talking about, uh, the, the devotion moderna, uh, where you had these brotherhoods and sisterhoods of laypersons that weren't monks, um, but they still decided to do life together. They raised him, uh, and he grew up to be a, a, a fairly devout man. Um, and so he's going to promote a very uh, simple Christ-centered faith. What really shapes him is in 1499, he visits England and he becomes friends with John Collette. I talked about him last week. He was an English Christian humanist and uh, he becomes friends with Thomas More. I talked about both of them. They hook him onto Christian humanism and zealously he will take it upon himself to master 
this new stuff they're talking about, really the Renaissance. Uh, and so he's going to become convinced that you need to know the Greek language. Uh, you need to really study the New Testament and the church fathers. They become really the light to his path. And then, uh, and then he's going to help renew people's interest in the church fathers by, in his lifetime, producing uh, new editions of their writings so that people could read them and become more acquainted with them. Now, for Erasmus, humanism was how you could reform Europe. From his vantage point, you have three major problems that Catholic Europe had that needed to be fixed. First, he said scholasticism's a problem. I know that uh, Catholicism, they would see scholasticism as like their high intellectual point, but these Renaissance thinkers rejected it. He said, Erasmus said their methods and conclusions were not right because they married Christianity to Aristotle. Um, so not surprisingly, the monks in the monasteries tried to convince people Erasmus was a heretic. It didn't work. Um, and Erasmus said, look, Christianity is about following Jesus, imitating Christ, not being philosophical and deba debating how many angels could fit on the, the point of a needle, right? Second problem is he said our religion externally is superstitious. It's embarrassing. You have relics, images, all these ceremonies, and then indulgences. Come on, we could all see this for what it is. It's a sham. You pay money to the church, and somehow they promise to get your dead relatives out of purgatory. He's like, this stuff makes us look stupid. People who kiss this piece of wood in Germany because they think it's part of the original cross that Jesus died on. It's like if you put all the pieces of the original cross together, that thing would be a hundred feet tall. It's because people are finding pieces of wood and lying and saying this is a piece of the cross. He's like, this is not what Christianity is about. True religion is inward and spiritual. Um, he even spoke in ways that said in transubstantiation, really, that makes no sense that invisibly the, the, the substance of the Lord's Supper somehow changes into an event that happened thousands of years ago. He's like, this doesn't make sense. Baptizing an infant doesn't make sense. In fact, he suggested that they should be rebaptized when they hit the age of puberty. And then third, he said the church itself, the institution, the clergy, the monks, and the papacy, they're corrupt. In fact, a lot of the clergy didn't know Latin. He's like, here they are trying to read Latin, and they're not even pronouncing the words right. They're just memorizing what their bishops told them. And yet the whole religious service is in Latin, and these guys don't even know it. They're just sounding like idiots up there when, when they're talking. He's like, so the clergy is no longer educated. The papacy is corrupt. And remember all the financial corruptions I told you guys about a couple lessons ago. Um, he looked at all that and said, listen, we, we need change. You know, the, the bottom line is uh, the church is in trouble. And the way he would critique them is he would write uh, almost like comedies, making fun of them. And so people would read them and then it would make the church into a laughing stock. His fam most famous example of this was The Praise of Folly, written in 1509, which ridiculed church corruption. And again, it, it's a comedy, so you're reading it, and it's funny, but you're like, yeah, these guys are stupid, and they're evil. And perhaps his most bold one is uh, he wrote something called Julius Excluded in 1517, Julius Excluded from Heaven, where he depicted Pope Julius II, uh, more or less going to hell, being denied access to heaven. Now, of course, he wrote this after Julius was dead. Um, he dared not do it while Julius was alive. But Julius won his papal election through bribery. Um, he bribed people. And then on top of that, um, he used his position to increase papal power and papal territory. And so 
everybody knew this guy was evil. And so he writes this where Pope Julius ends up at the pearly gates and he starts arguing with Peter. He excommunicates Peter when Peter won't let him in. And it's like, are you serious? Like, you're sitting in my seat. Because, you know, they're talking like Peter's the first pope. And you're telling me I'm out. No, no, no. And so it's just real funny. You read it and you're like, yeah, these guys are knuckleheads. And so that was the kind of uh, brilliance that Erasmus was able to uh, display. That one became a bestseller. Now, those are the problems. How do you fix the problems? He said, first, you need moral reform. He wasn't super detailed on doctrine. And in fact, one of the most famous doctrinal debates is going to be between him and Martin Luther. At first, Martin Luther considers Erasmus on their side. But then when he looks at Erasmus's doctrine, he's like, no. And so they get in a famous uh, debate like where they both write a book against each other. And, uh, and so from that, you could see that Erasmus was not detailed on doctrine. Luther totally wins the day in that debate, in my opinion. Um, but Erasmus was probably the more brilliant man. He just wasn't very uh, firm on his doctrine. Instead, he thought, saw Christianity mainly as a, a form of ethical living, a way of living. Uh, the, the book, The Dagger and the Christian Soldier, 1503, presented Christianity as just imitating Christ. Um, you don't need to know the doctrine, you just need to follow Christ. Um, so he figured that would fix Europe. And then the second thing would be cultural reform. He's like, we need to solve humanity's problems with education. Now, the church would say, yes, the church and the clergy provide that education. He's like, no, it needs to be teachers and it needs to be, um, you know, uh, schools. And of course, this is what the world says today. Don't let the church be the one that frames our culture, but let it be the school system and the teachers. That has not led us well. Okay, that has not led us well. That has been one of the worst things that has befallen our culture right now. A bunch of teachers with master's degrees in education, which, by the way, I have a master's degree in educational administration, and I could tell you that that particular degree is easier to get than an associate's degree. These are not our intellectual superiors by any means. And when they're like, why should I listen to a parent? I have a master's degree. It's a master's degree that's easier to get than an associate's degree in liberal arts at the local junior college, okay? I'm going on a little, never mind. The point is, that idea started back then, that it's the, the school and the teachers that, that will frame our society rather than the church. Now, Erasmus said this because the church failed. But what I would like to also tell you is the schools and, and liberal teachers have failed as well. So maybe just the church doing it better, who knows. Um, but yeah, I probably shouldn't uh, go on that rant too much. <laughs> um, oh, I went back. To the wrong slide. Um, so, yeah. The third thing is scriptural reform. The study of scripture had to hold the central place in reform. This is where he would be different than the modern liberals. School and teacher, but scripture has to hold the central place because it is the supreme source of divine wisdom for human living. Uh, but if this is going to be the case, and this is where Erasmus is going to make a really big contribution. He says the Bible has to be in the language of the people. It can't just be in Latin anymore. And so to help convince Europe that this needed to happen, he, in 1505, he publishes Lorenzo Valla's annotations, where, remember, Valla documented all the errors in the Latin Vulgate and said, look, these are, this is where it disagrees with the Greek. There's some things Jerome got wrong. 
A lot of things he got wrong. And so here, here's proof that the Latin Vulgate is not inspired. It didn't come from heaven. The Greek and Hebrew came from heaven, not the Latin Vulgate. And so once he puts that out there, he says, what we need is something better. And then he dedicates a lot of his life to producing a Greek New Testament based on the manuscripts that he had. It was not a perfect Greek New Testament, but it was better than the Latin Vulgate. And what he put together is going to be used by Martin Luther to make the German New Testament. Martin Luther is going to take Erasmus's Greek New Testament and say, all right, this is what I'm going to now translate into German. So they're getting closer and closer to the sources, ad fontes, right? Now, some people are going to take Erasmus's Greek New Testament, they're going to make a couple tweaks to it, and it's eventually going to be dubbed the Textus Receptus, which means the received text. That will then become the Greek text that is used for the King James Version. I just throw that out there because the King James only people try to act like Textus Receptus, received text. That's what it means. Received from who? From God. No. From Erasmus and then those who tweaked it, right? The Texas Receptus is not this holy Greek text that fell out of heaven. It was Erasmus putting together a handful of Greek manuscripts available to him. What we have now are over 5,000 manuscripts that we could compare. So the Greek New Testament we have now is even more accurate than that one. But that one was definitely a step up from what was, uh, from what was available to, uh, to people in that time. Uh, now, unfortunately, he didn't care about the Hebrew. He was dismissive of the Old Testament. He thought, eh, Old Testament isn't very uh, useful for my life. Um, so he mainly focused his life's work on the New Testament. But the bottom line is this sows the seeds of the Reformation because in the 16th century, uh, what's going to happen is Luther's going to make a German New Testament. Calvin's going to make a French one. Um, Tyndale's going to make an English one. And this all stems from the fact that this is what Erasmus said needed to happen and he provided the Greek text that people could use for that translation. So for the translating process, this is why in the 1500s people said, you know what, Erasmus laid the egg and Luther hatched it. Um, and I think that's a, an accurate statement. It, it definitely is. All right, so that ends the Renaissance. The next thing I want to talk about is uh, the witch hunts or the witch craze. And there's a lot I could say about this. I won't talk too long about it because I want to get to the Eastern Church. Um, but the European witch craze. This happened during the Renaissance. Remember, the Renaissance is the one that rejected the Middle Ages as superstitious. Yet the Middle Ages wasn't out there killing witches. It was the Renaissance that was killing the witches. And so, uh, you know, and of course, the liberal society out there always tries to ding the church for this. And yeah, the people were religious who did this, but for what it's worth, every culture's believed in witches and every culture's killed who they thought were witches, okay? So it's not just a Christian problem. But the interesting thing is it was the humanists and the secularists that were the driving force behind the witch craze. Because the same things that were said about witches in the Renaissance, when the Middle-aged scholastics looked at it, they're like, ah, that's superstition. That's stupid. And then you get to the Renaissance and they actually believe this stuff was true. So it was believed that witches sold their souls to Satan, that usually they were like a 50-year-old to 70-year-old hunched-over woman with pockmarked face, uh, and I'll get to all that. And then Satan appears in their door, at their door as a man, seduces them. They fornicate. He then gives them a mark on their body that shows he belongs to them. And then they would meet and have these, uh, these, uh, these worship fests with Satan on Saturdays. And they called it Shabbat. 
So again, remember, these guys hated the Jews already. And so since witches are the bad guys now, they're going to associate them with Judaism. They meet the devil um, on Saturdays in synagogues where they have a star. The only difference was it wasn't a six-pointed star. It was the five-pointed star, the pentagram, which is called the Goat of Mendes. And look, were there some witches? Were there some Satan worshipers? Absolutely. Was it as widespread as they thought? No. What they said was that these women were able to fly on broomsticks. Sorry, can't fly on broomsticks. That they could actually dissolve themselves into grease. Like they could turn their whole body into grease, slip through the keyhole, reform into a woman, and steal a baby to take it out there and, and sacrifice it to Satan. Um, and then, of course, they were supposed to be sexually perverse as well. Now, the church in the Middle Ages heard all this. They're like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Why would anybody believe this? And so the church in the Middle Ages rightly said, we're not going to do anything about this. Okay, there might be a couple Satan worshipers out there, but this stuff ain't happening. Okay, by the time you get to the Renaissance, all of a sudden, yes, yes, they can turn into grease and fly on broomsticks. And it's like, what? And even the scientists like Francis Bacon believed in witches. So this was not a dark ages superstitious thing. This is when humans are coming into the scientific revolution. Even the scientists were purporting this. Now, there was this famous book called Malus Malicific, uh, oh, Malefic, ah, I'm sounding, uh, I can't pronounce Latin words very well. Let me look at the big ones. So it's malus maleficarum. There it was, maleficarum, which means the hammer of witches. This was written as the encyclopedia of witchcraft, written by two uh, Dominican friars in 1486. And it was one of the most reprinted books for the next two centuries. Pretty much it came from secret trials where witches were put on trial and they confessed to all this stuff. And then eyewitnesses. And, and, and pretty much what these guys put together is this giant book talking about all the witches' powers, where they worship, how they do stuff. And so it spoke about, um, you know, Malif, <laughs> which was that, hey, every time there's accidents or plagues or death or bad crops or men, if they didn't have Viagra back then. And so if, if you know, you were in need, it's because a witch has put a curse on you. And then miscarriages, it's because of a witch. And then, of course, that's where they said, and by the way, they all gather on the same day of the week, on Saturday in these synagogues. And so there was a new class of people called witch hunters, where their job was to walk around Europe trying to find witches and kill them. And for centuries, they were trying to find just one of these Shabbats. If they could stumble upon one of them, they'll find Satan there, they'll find all these witches, and then they could just kill them all and say, look, we found it, here's proof. Let me tell you something, and 300 years of witch hunting, nobody ever found one of these meetings because they didn't exist. You know, again, are there witches? Are there satanic people out there? Yes. But was it this kind of stuff? No, no. And so pretty much, uh, but this book got everybody fired up. So could you imagine that your job is to hunt witches down, but you can't find where they live? And so how did these guys stay employed? Well, they did find, wit they did find wit uh, victims. Up to 80% of, of accused witches were women. 20% were men, but 80% were women. And the stereotype was it was either a married or widowed woman between ages 50 and 70, crippled and bent, you know, uh, and with pockmarked skin. They often practiced midwifery, meaning they would help people, women, give birth. And so if something goes wrong and you're 50 years old and life is 
beat your face up, maybe they would say, I just think of a better way to say it. They'd be like, that's a witch. And that is why that baby died. And of course, if they were into folk medicine and if they had sharp tongues, if they were quick to rebuke you, you know, you young man, you get out of here. Well, that's a witch, you know. And so the fear of witches took a terrible toll on innocent lives. Let me just give some some stats real quick. In southwestern Germany, 3,229 witches were executed between 1561 and 1670. Uh, The communities of the Swiss Confederation, 5,417 between 1470 and 1700. Between 1559 and 1736, England killed almost 1,000 witches. Now, listen, these figures I'm giving you are just from the legal trials, okay? Trials where there's paperwork. That's how we get the numbers. But you do know there's something called village justice as well, or mob justice. These are just the ones where they're taken to a court in a major city. But we all have the picture in our head of the angry mob with pitchforks and torches that will ravage, you know, a rural community and and hang 20 women at once because they're the witches, you know. So the thing is that it's probably as high as 200,000 women were killed over the course of 300 years, um, you know, due to the witch craze. Uh, and then when, by the time you get to the Enlightenment, it starts dying out. So, uh, so yeah, it's interesting that the Middle Ages were never given into this. But, uh, but the Renaissance and even the Scientific Revolution, it did. And so I put at the bottom there, the Middle Ages weren't as much of the Dark Ages as Renaissance people thought. Because the Renaissance got this on their hands. This is blood on their hands. And, you know, people say, well, then how, how did they find so many people that they could execute as witches. Well, you know that we use the word witch hunt today, right? When we talk about, oh, they're going on a witch hunt. It comes down to torture. When you torture someone to make the torture stop, they're going to start naming people. You know, tell me who the the witch leader is. I'm not a witch. It's burning. All right, it's Melissa, you know, or whatever. And then they start torturing her and she names three other people. And that's how all of a sudden some, you know, angry, sharp-tongued 50-year-old woman, you know, starts with her and it becomes like, you know, 10 women in the town from torture. Well, you go, you fast forward, let's say, into the communist witch hunts of the 1950s. They weren't torturing, but they were threatening to fire you from your job and throw you in prison just because they thought you were a communist. So the way you could say I'm not a communist is by cooperating. Look, I'm no commie, but I know who is. His name's Albert. And they all meet at his house, and so then they let me go. And now Albert is, you know, brought in and he has to answer to McCarthy and his stooges about, you know, communism. So we get that that lingo of the witch hunt from how they got more numbers of witches. And, and when we say witch hunt, we often mean a lot of innocent people get accused of something that's not true because other people under duress are just shouting out names to make that duress stop. So anyhow, just wanted to share some of that with you. So concluding the Renaissance, it transitioned the church out of the medieval period and paved the way for the Reformation. Uh, Needham, Nick Needham says it perfectly, quote, he says, by demanding that the Bible be studied in Greek and Hebrew through the grammatical historical method, free from the control of scholastic theology, and by exalting the early church fathers above the schoolmen as interpreters of the gospel, the Christian humanists prepared people's minds to accept that the Catholic Church of the Middle Ages had gone disastrously wrong and needed the drastic remedy of the Reformation. And then there's a, a 
uh, up-and-coming uh, church historian at uh, Midwestern Seminary in uh, Missouri and, and named Matthew Barrett, and he says this. He says that Luther was a medieval man trying to renew the church by retrieving its, to, its true heritage. And, and one thing he said is he said that Luther used the best of the Middle Ages to confront the church's embrace of the worst of the Middle Ages. Um, and that's what the Reformation is, trying to, to hold on to the best of the Middle Ages and you know, purge out the corruption of the church, both doctrinally and morally. So Renaissance certainly aided with all of that. So that being said, we are done with the Renaissance. And so now what I would like to do is move into uh, Eastern Christianity. Just got to wait for it to, to load up. I might have to walk back there and see what's up with this. There we go. Okay. So, the spread of the Eastern Church. The reason why it is important to talk about this one is because, you know, we don't often talk about the Eastern Church anywhere near enough. Uh, I remember Rachel asked multiple lessons ago, when are we going to talk about the Eastern Church? And then I did. And then we had like 10 more lessons on the Western Church, and now there needs to be um, another one on the Eastern Church. Because remember, this was half the church before the Reformation. And so we've pretty much covered almost everything up to the Reformation with the Western Church. We need to do the same thing with the Eastern Church, and then I will end uh, the course with groups that broke away from Catholicism before the Reformation and how they were dealt with. And then that's what would end the first course. So very important for us to, uh, to dive into the, the Eastern Church. And so my goal is to talk about it from the 9th through the 16th centuries in one lesson. I know that's a tall order, but let's go. Um, so introduction. The Eastern Church developed in a manner independent from the Western Church. We're going to focus on its history mainly after the schism of 1054 when the East and West split. But I still have to talk a little bit before the schism. Um, and then eventually, you're going to have the Eastern Church dominate a geographic area that was larger than all of West Europe. I know what you might be thinking. If you've been paying attention, you might be thinking, but the Byzantine Empire was pathetic, and it was shrinking, and Western Europe was powerful. How could the Eastern Church, you know, even be a major factor? It's because it spread outside of the Byzantine Empire and actually spread through a land much bigger than Western Europe. Um, and so this will happen because the Eastern Church exists outside of the Byzantine Empire. Therefore, when the Byzantine Empire falls, the Eastern Church still survives. Um, there's going to be a lot of successful Eastern missionary work and contextualization that contributes to the growth of the Eastern Church. Um, and that's one of the famous Eastern Church buildings there. So that's the typical type of beautiful architecture of uh, Greek Orthodox churches or Eastern Orthodox churches. Um, now, look, the Western and Eastern Church during this time were still intertwined because I'm sure you guys have noticed, as I was talking about the Crusades and Renaissance and, and various times, there's points where I bring in these uh, patriarchs of Constantinople and these emperors of Byzantium. They're still interacting with each other. And so some of the names you're going to hear are going to be familiar. It's kind of like, let me, uh, let me give this as an analogy. And this analogy might not work. But 
If you've ever seen the World War II movie Flags of Our Fathers, which was directed by Clint Eastwood, and it's the story about the, the guys who put the flag on Iwo Jima. Um, great movie. Well, at the exact same time that Clint Eastwood was directing that and filming it, a Japanese producer was filming a movie called Letters of Iwo Jima, and they worked together on this. And so there are two movies that you could watch back to back. The Japanese guys that you see getting shot in our movie are the actors in their movie. And then if you watch their movie, the Americans getting shot are the actors in our movie. And so it was a collaborative effort by these two to show the same battle through the opposing lenses. And I say that to say that I'm going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about Pope Innocent again. We're going to be talking about some of these guys that we've already learned about in the West, but now you're looking at them not from the Western standpoint, but from the Eastern standpoint. So it's like now you're watching Letters of Iwo Jima rather than Flags of Our Fathers. So hopefully that analogy makes sense. If you've never seen either of those movies, the American version, easy to keep up with because we're used to movies like that. The Japanese one, the music and the pace, I did take a couple naps. But between the naps, you pause it, you wake up, you're refreshed. It's still worth watching the whole thing. Uh, but anyhow, so a lot of this is going to come down in the growth of the Eastern Church to Slavic peoples, Slavs. Slavs, when, you, when I say the word Slav, I'm talking about Eastern Europeans. Um, so after the Great Schism of 1054, you would think that Rome's influence would be way larger than Constantinople because Rome had ecclesiastical authority over all of Western Europe. But I would say not so fast. You know, even though the Byzantine Empire was a shell of what it was, outside of Byzantium, there was this massive territory of central I guess you could say Eurasia, right? It's the middle right in between Europe and Asia, as well as all of Eastern Europe. So it was lands to the north and west. Together, they're larger than Western Europe. And it was the land of the Slavs. And it's in those lands that Eastern Orthodoxy is going to flourish. And there's a lot of churches you may have heard of. Um, and you wonder where they came from. They're Eastern Orthodox, but they have their own flavor because they're national churches that belong to these Slavic groups. And if I get far enough today, you're even going to learn why Russia and Ukraine are fighting right now, where ultimately this historically goes back to, why the Russians think Ukraine is theirs, why they think Kiev's theirs. And so we're, we're, we're going to go to all that. But the, the three main Slavic groups, there's a lot more than this, but these are the big ones. You have the Moravians, the Bulgars, and the Serbs. Um, they came originally out of central Russia before it was Russia. That was just the landmass they came from. And then they spread through the plains of Eastern and Central Europe in the 5th and 6th centuries. So this is happening 5th and 6th centuries. So think of the time the Roman Empire fell. The Roman Empire fell because the Goths are moving into Rome, okay, or into Western Europe. At the same time in Eastern Europe, that's when the Slavs are, are moving into there. That's when, when these guys are taking, uh, you know, shape there. Now, they were pagans. They worshipped a pantheon where they, they followed Perun, the god of thunder, Dazbag, the god of the sun, Jarovit, the god of springtime. A lot of these you can map on Norse gods. You could also map them on the Greek gods. Um, now, the first Slavs that are going to give Christianity a hearing are the Moravians. Moravia, if you want to know where it was, it would be the eastern part of the Czech Republic today. So if you go to a map of Europe, find the Czech Republic, the eastern half of that, you go back in time, that's where the Moravians were. So let me talk a little bit about the Moravian mission. 
In 860, so this is quite some time before the schism, in 860, the Moravian prince, Radislav, asked the Byzantine emperor, Michael III, to send missionaries to instruct his people in the Christian faith. He's like, I know we're pagans, but I'm asking you, send your missionaries. Let's see what you guys are all about. Now, the last time I talked about the East, it was leading up to the schism, and I talked about Photius the Great. He was one of the guys that was really big on the Eastern arguments against the Philoke controversy. So we're going back to when he was the patriarch of Constantinople. He sends two Greek brothers, Cyril and Methodius, and there's two, you know, Eastern Orthodox paintings of them. Prior to this, they were already uh, missionaries in Muslim lands. They had some effect there, but they're going to have way more effect among the Slavs. The brothers go to Moravia and realize these Slavic people have no written form. They have a spoken language, but they have no writing. So these guys will invent an alphabet for them that is called the Silric alphabet because it's named after Cyril. And here it is right here. It's a combination of Greek and some other things, but they gave these guys a written language, taught them how to read, taught them how to write, and then took uh, pretty much uh, gave them religious literature, liturgy, all this kind of stuff in their own native language. This becomes the language of Russia and most of the Slavic peoples in the world. Two brothers just made up a written language for these guys. Kind, kind of interesting. Now, they were successful in Moravia, uh, but Moravia uh, is not going to remain Orthodox because by the time you get to the ninth century, the Franks were dominant in West Europe, and they're going to try to force this area to be loyal to the Pope. Now, as long as the brothers were there, there was some legitimate uh, back and forth going on between East and West. But once the brothers die, the Franks are going to have their way, and the Moravians end up becoming a Western church. But the significance here is this language that was developed for them will be moved to all the other Slavs, and this is what's going to make it very possible for the rest of the Slavic peoples to become Eastern Orthodox. And this gives the East an advantage over the West, because the West, as you know, demands that all worship be in Latin. It was that way until my mom was a little kid. That's when they finally said the Mass could be in English or in other languages. So think about that. Definitely go back then. It's got to be in Latin. Well, I don't know Latin. Too bad. You're out of luck. But in the East, you'd be like, no, it doesn't have to be in, in the Greek of Constantinople. We'll put it in your language. Well, we can't read or write. We'll give you an alphabet, you know, that, that can be mapped on to your own language. And so that is going to definitely help the Eastern Church spread. So the next one is Bulgaria. Bulgaria. And so the Eastern Christians that were expelled from Moravia will move south into Bulgaria, and they're going to work in a friendlier setting. Now, I mentioned this before when I was talking about the Philoke controversy, but the Bulgarian ruler, Boris, 852 to 888, those were his reign dates. He accepted baptism into the Eastern Church in 865. But then he demanded that Constantinople let Bulgaria have an independent, autonomous church of Bulgaria. Constantinople said, no. He's like, fine, then I'm going to go to the West. And so what happens is the, the Pope then sends over his missionaries. The Eastern missionaries are, are over there, and their fight over Bulgaria is what sparked off the Philoke controversy that 100 years later split the church. It all started here in Bulgaria. 
Well, when it became clear to Boris that the Pope wasn't going to let him have an independent church either, he already agreed to the baptism of the East, and he felt that culturally they were the better option to go with. So in 870, Boris switches allegiance back to Byzantium, and the emperor and patriarch of Constantinople say, you know what, you can have an independent national church. So the Church of Bulgaria is independent. It's in friendly cooperation with the Church of Constantinople, but it's independent. Um, and so that is going to be one reason why the Eastern Church is going to be, in some sense, more successful than the West during this time. Now, once the king settled on this, the Moravian missionaries spread Christianity rapidly throughout Bulgaria. Um, and, it, and again, the people are starting to convert because of the work of the missionaries. But when Boris retires and leaves the kingdom to his son, Vladimir, his son tries to make it go pagan again. You know, make Bulgaria pagan again. Baga. Okay, so the thing is, then Boris is like, oh, no, son, you ain't doing that. So he comes out of retirement, raises an army, fights his son, blinds him, punishes, imprisons him for the rest of his life. And then he says, my other son, Simeon, will be the ruler. And so Simeon ends up being the greatest of the Bulgarian czars. And under his rule, Bulgaria will civilize itself according to the Byzantine civilization and culture. Remember, the Byzantines were, they carried on the ancient civilization of ancient Greece and Rome. Um, and so they, they never lost, they never had a dark ages, if you will. And so the thing is, Bulgaria, the, the Slavic peoples weren't as civilized as the Byzantines. They're like, civilize us. We'll adopt your, your culture and your knowledge and your history. But we want it in our own language. And now it was possible because of that alphabet. And so that's going to happen. And they're going to be able to now learn and have their own Byzantine-like culture. But it's going to still be their own because they have their own language. And then it's going to escalate. In 927, the Patriarch of Constantinople will promote um, the Archbishop of Bulgaria to the rank of Patriarch. Now think about that. In the Eastern Church, a Patriarch is the equivalent of the Pope. You know, so he, he's the equivalent of the Pope. So they already have the Patriarch of Constantinople, Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Antioch. Now a Patriarch of Bulgaria, equal with the other ones. Imagine that, granting equality to this group. And, and what this does is this highlights the difference between the West and the East. The West demanded total submission and conformity to Rome and the papacy, whereas the East says, if your church grows enough, we'll put a patriarch over you that will be in equal standing um, to the other patriarchs. Rome would say, you got to do it in Latin. The East would say, no, you could do it in your, your own language. Um, and so that is going to assist in the spread of Christianity throughout the Slavic lands. This is called contextualization, where you have a much better chance of reaching a people with the gospel if once they're converted, you allow them to worship Christ in their own forms, in their own language, with their own music styles and stuff like that, instead of forcing them to be like, like us. You know, it was kind of sad when British missionaries would go to a country and then you walk in a church and it's a British piano, all the songs are in English, and everybody in that church happens to be white. You know, it's because whether you're talking about India or wherever, 
the forms didn't match. These people were like, this is a foreign religion. William Carey says, what we're going to do is we're going to go to India, we're going to preach the gospel, then we're going to write hymn songs in Indian to their musical styles and, and stuff like that. Then all of a sudden the church starts growing there. Contextualization. It makes sense. Well, here you go. The, the Eastern Orthodox have been doing this for a very long time. Um, these, these Eastern churches were, uh, or these national churches were given their own spiritual leader. Most of the time it was an archbishop or a metropolitan bishop, same thing. But again, if they grew in prominence, then it could be uh, a patriarch. Regardless of whatever it was, these churches were, the technical word is, is autocephalous. I know that sounds like a technical word. Autocephalous means they were independent, self-governing. From this point on, usually they could pick their own leaders. Um, and it doesn't have to come from Constantinople. Yet, they're still following the same traditions and practices and creeds of Constantinople. So after the Bulgarians, let's talk about the Serbians. Um, the missionaries of Cyril and Methodius also evangelized the Slavs of Serbia in the 9th century. Now, Serbia, there's going to be a struggle between the East and the West again. Both are appealing for their, uh, um, their loyalty. And um, supporters of the Eastern faith are going to do just what I talked about. They're going to say, hey, we're going to give you this religion in your own language. And, uh, and we'll give you a culture in your language that's patterned off the civilized Byzantiums. Which, by the way, if we're talking about the 800s, the Byzantine Empire was way more cultured and civilized than the Western Europe at this time, which was uh, Frankish rather than, uh, you know, Roman Greco. And so, again, the East just has more to offer. Now, the Roman church is still going to try to win the Serbs over, but you fast forward a few centuries. By the time you get to the, the 1100s and the 1200s, the Serbs are going to completely embrace the Eastern form even deeper. And it starts because of a, a father and a son. The father was, the, was King Stephen I of Serbia. He had a number of sons, but one of his sons that he really loved and wanted to place him as like the heir, that son wanted nothing to do with politics. He wanted to be a monk. And so he changes his name to Sava, and he flees from the political appointments his dad gave him, went to a monastery in a different country. His father is angry, sends soldiers after him. But, and so they, they have a rocky relationship for a long time. But near the end of the king's life, um, he decides that, you know what? I think my son was right. And completely giving myself over to God and giving myself over the monastic life is what I should do. So he reconciles with his son, and they both serve as monks together. And so King Stephen was henceforth called Simeon rather than Stephen because that was his new monk name. And so uh, these two together um, kind of lead a, a homegrown monastic movement in Serbia that was so impressive to the Byzantines that uh, the emperor of Constantinople gives them one of the most famous monasteries, says we're turning this over to, uh, to Serbia in 1199. Um, and it was now an independent Serbian monastery that could produce its own monks. And it became the center of Serbian orthodoxy and culture. Now, it's going to get a little complicated because eventually Stephen dies, or Simeon, and now that dad is dead, civil war is going to break out between his sons, um, one ruling the northeast and the other ruling the southwest. Now, Pope Innocent III, remember that guy, most powerful pope in Western history, the one that, um, yeah, just bad guy <laughs> in many ways. 
Um, although he did take care of that uh, that Dutch princess that the king of France tried to cast to the side. But anyhow, so Pope Innocent III is going to back the son that ruled the south and western part of Serbia. Um, in those areas, Christianity started to look Roman because Innocent was giving him support. During the same time frame, Constantinople was destroyed by the Fourth Crusade. Remember when those Franks show up to supposedly help Constantinople, but then they put uh, an emperor back in power, but then he can't pay what he promised, so they completely sack Constantinople, and then they replace its patriarch with the bishop of the West, loyal to innocent. That's all going on at this time. So now the mother church in Constantinople is under the control of the pope. Um, so that's the spiritual mother of Serbian Orthodoxy under the thumb of the Pope. And then Serbia itself in a civil war where half the country's going Catholic because of Pope Innocent's support of one of the warring brothers. So Sava realizes, I got to come out of retirement. You know, I'd never wanted to get involved in politics and I'm not going to be a politician, but I have to get my brothers to stop fighting. And so here's what he does. He brings the casket of his father, who has been dead for seven years now. He brings it to a meeting where both of his brothers are at and says, is this what your father wanted? And then he opened the casket and Stephen didn't decompose. Seven years later, he looked exactly like he did the day he died and he didn't stink. Now, in the Middle Ages, it was believed that was a sign that your soul was in heaven because God's not letting your body down here decompose, that you're a saint, you skipped purgatory, at least the West would skip purgatory, the East didn't believe in purgatory, but they all believed you're automatically in heaven and you're automatically a saint. And when the brothers saw their dad like that, they broke down and decided to reconcile and stop fighting. And the one that was siding with Pope Innocent just abdicated. And then all rule went to the other one and then um, they're going to embrace the Eastern faith. Um, so it's kind of, kind of interesting. This kind of thing happens in Eastern churches more than not. Uh, even like 15 years ago, there was an Egyptian patriarch that died like years before that. And then they opened his casket and I mean, the guy looked like he just died. So I don't know what's up with that, but I've seen some of it with my own eyes. I'll just tell you that. And so it, it's not, uh, it doesn't surprise me that this happened with, uh, with, with Stephen. And so the Civil War ends, and in the following years, uh, people will overwhelmingly embrace Eastern Christianity because Sava is just going to give such a good example to them. In fact, the true patriarch of Constantinople, what do I mean when I say that? Well, remember, there's a Western patriarch, you know, that's under the thumb of Innocent III. Well, the real patriarch fled and relocated to Nicaea. And so that real patriarch of Constantinople and the real emperor, they lived in Nicaea, and they declare Sava now to be the archbishop of the Serbian Orthodox Church. Um, and Serbian Orthodox Church, this is the building, the, the cathedral that's named after Sava. Beautiful building. That's what it looks like inside. Still there today. Um, and, uh, and pretty much about a century later, there was some controversy, but Constantinople by that point was back under its normal rulers. It had its normal patriarch. And they're going to then upgrade the Archbishop of, of Serbia as a patriarch. So now you have the other patriarchs, you have the Bulgarian patriarch, and now you have a Serbian patriarch. Um, and again, it's going to be an autocephalous church as well, where it's, it's self-governing. Um, you know, Sava, a little bit about him. He was so revered by the Serbians that when he died in 1236, 
Even Catholics and Jews came from far distances to attend his funeral and to pay respect to him. So Saba was like the real deal. Now, century later, 150 years later, the Turkish Muslims conquer Serbia, 1389. They want to force the Serbs to be Muslims, um, but a lot of them won't turn because they're just so loyal to Sava and the example he gave of Christ. So the Muslims actually dug his body up and burned it, hoping that it would cause the, the Serbians to turn against their religion. And some Serbians did. And if you wonder about all the stuff that was happening at the turn of the century in Serbia between the Serbians and the Albanians, it's this. Okay, so the ones that, committed, that converted to Islam were one side. The Serbians stayed Christian, and a couple hundred years later, they were killing each other. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff has effects um, all the way to the present time. Okay, let's talk about the Romanian and Greek church. Uh, the Greek church, I just give one bullet to, but the Romanian church. Who are the Romanians? Kind of interesting. Um, they lived in the kingdoms of Moldavia and Wallachia, which was right between Bulgaria and Russia. And the, Romian, the Romans, the Romanians, were not originally Slavic. They were actually a combination of Romans and Dacians. So you had the Roman legions that settled that area to stop the Goths from coming in in the second century. And they were successful at it. That's when Rome was at its peak. Okay, they intermarried with the native Dacians. And this is the mix from which the Romanians came from. So they weren't Slavic. But over the centuries, by the time you get to the 6th century, so many Slavic tribes settled in that area. Uh, eventually, Romania was just absorbed into a Slavic culture. Um, now, the Romanians were Christian since the 2nd century, but the Bulgarian missionaries won them over to Byzantine Christianity. They, too, adopt the Slavonic language for worship, but it was their own unique version because it has a lot of Latin in it because of their Roman um, heritage. Um, so, yeah. And then how you would think, well, wasn't Greece always Eastern Orthodox? Yes, but there came a point during migrations that a bunch of pagan Slavs migrated to Greece and became a huge part of the population. So a huge portion of Greece wasn't Christian at all anymore. And then, of course, the Eastern Church will faithfully evangelize them. And that's when you get the Greek Orthodox Church. Okay, so it's it, the Byzantine Church of Constantinople is not technically the Greek Orthodox Church. The Greek Orthodox Church is the church that converted around this time, you know, 10th century-ish, um, when the pagan Slavs got, uh, got converted. So, now, the big dog here, the big dog are the Russians. Russian Orthodoxy, okay? Um, I don't know how much of the Russians I'm going to get through. We'll see how fast I'm, I'm able to talk through this stuff. But um, that's the most profound version of Eastern Orthodoxy today is probably Russian Orthodoxy. In the 10th century, which would be the 900s, a powerful and prosperous, the most powerful and prosperous city in Russia was Kiev. Now you might be saying, no, Kiev's in Ukraine. It was Russia then. There was no Ukraine then, okay? So it was Kiev. That was Russia's greatest city. Um, and their rulers were a tribal group called the Rus. Where do you think Russia comes from? From this particular tribal group. Now, they were likely Norsemen. 
they were related to the, the um, Vikings. They were a Viking group, but eventually they'll mix with Slavs and there'll be a combination of the two. They were pagans. They were an ethnic group of aristocratic warriors that extended their rule from Kiev to the neighboring Slavic tribes and towns. And they were the, became the dominant group of Slavs. Now, they, became, they took advantage of trade with the Byzantine Empire. Because they realize, man, the Byzantine Empire is rich. Let's trade with them. And this opens Kiev up to Christian influence. Because when you're trading and you're receiving diplomats and all that, you start seeing the culture. You start wondering about the religion. And so by the time you get to 945, there's already a church in Kiev. It's by no means Christian yet, but there's a church there. And so then you have the Russian princess Olga, as her, when her husband dies, her son's too young to be the ruler, so she's kind of ruling in his place while he's growing up, um, and that's from 945 to, to 964. And she converted to Christianity, and she was baptized in Constantinople in 957. But this didn't lead to the conversion of all the Russians, um, because as soon as her son comes of age, he chooses to remain pagan because he was afraid the warriors would consider Christianity weak. He didn't want to be mocked, and so he stayed pagan. But his child um, is going to be the one that makes the people Christian, and so that will be the grandson of Olga, Prince, Prince Vladimir, uh, 980 to uh, 1015. Um, so let me talk about uh, the conversion here. According to tradition, Vladimir invited representatives of the four great religions. Come to Kiev, try to sell me your religion. I want to see the merits of your faith. So the four religions were Judaism, Islam, Eastern Orthodox, and Western Christianity. He was not impressed with Judaism. He was not impressed with Islam. But man, Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox were like a tie in his mind. So what he does is he sends delegates to Rome and Constantinople. See how these people worship. The ones that went to Rome, they're like, yeah, it's all right. The ones that went to the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople were like, Vladimir, we saw heaven on earth. The, the worship was beautiful. It was amazing. And in fact, remember, Hagia Sophia is still to this day the most beautiful church ever constructed. It looks like the roofs are suspended um, and just floating. And remember how they have the gold and silver there. And when the sunlight at a certain angle shines in, it just looks like the whole place is illuminated with gold light everywhere. So pretty much they, they tell Vladimir, you got to see this place. This is crazy. And the Russians prize beauty and form in their worship more than doctrine. It's not that doctrine doesn't matter, but if you have a choice, let's say they're equally sold on Eastern and Western doctrine, but this one has more beautiful forms of worship, that's what they're going to go with. So Vladimir chose, based on those reports from his delegates, to go uh, Eastern Orthodox. Um, and so then that was in the year 988, and once Vladimir converts, most of the, the Rush followed him, and uh, him and a lot of them were baptized in the Dnieper River, which I got that painting there showing that. And then they took their chief idol, the chief pagan god Perun, took him to the top of a mountain and threw it off. And so that's the bottom uh, picture there of them destroying that idol. So that's how they converted. And then like the other Eastern peoples, they're going to adopt the Byzantine forms. Vladimir wants to make all of Kiev a Christian kingdom modeled off Constantinople. And so the patriarch of Constantinople then appoints a metropolitan or archbishop to Kiev to lead the Russian church. 
And by the way, this is the typical Russian church architecture where the domes on the top look like onions. That is very distinct to Russian churches. Now, Constantinople is going to nominate their bishops for the next 500 years. Eventually, though, Russia will become independent. Vladimir then married the emperor of Constantinople's sister, which made a blood tie. Now, between the, the Russian church and the, the church of the Byzantine Empire. Uh, and then a bunch of Byzantine monks moved to Kiev, and they taught the Russians Byzantine culture and civilization. They translate the Byzantine literature and other religious writings into Slavonic. But again, they use that Cyrillic alphabet. That's why the Russians have that alphabet. And this allowed the Russians to understand their religion. Look, you know, as Western Christians, you know, we might not understand Eastern Orthodoxy as much as we understand Catholicism, but here's the thing. The average, let's say, Catholic in France knew a lot less about what he believed than the average Russia, Russian did at this time, because they were at least hearing their worship in their own language um, and hearing the truth taught in their own language. And so again, I think in many ways the Eastern Church was superior to the Western Catholic Church, not in every way, but in a lot of ways. Um, now, of course, evangelical Protestantism and the five solas, that's the way to go. But uh, again, if we're just comparing Rome with, uh, with Constantinople, I think Constantinople has more going for it. Um, Russia will develop its own style, including the architecture that I told you about with the, <laughs> the onion-shaped uh, domes. Um, and then Vladimir, another thing he's famous for is he, he read the Bible and he took Christian ethics and he applied it to social and political problems and developed a system of taking care of the poor, a welfare system that was way ahead of anything happening in Western Europe. So again, the Russians have a really, really good start. Now, the problem is, though, after he dies, a massive civil war breaks out between his 12 sons. Um, his quiver was filled with many arrows, but those arrows are not going to get along with each other. And so two of them refuse to fight. The text I'm preaching Sunday is actually the one turned the other cheek. They took it to mean not fight back, and the other brothers took advantage of them and killed them. Okay, you're not going to fight back, you know, and they, they killed them. Jesus is not telling you to stand there and let yourself be killed. So I'll, I'll bring that up on Sunday, but that's how they read it. And, and then, of course, the rest of the sons are fighting, and after four years of battle, one of Vladimir's sons emerges as the supreme leader, Yaroslav the Wise, and under his rule, it all gets unified, and Kiev becomes the cultural and artistic capital of the Russian people. So again, I want you to think about that. We're talking about the 11th century, talking about the 10 hundreds. Kiev was Russia's center. Okay, there was no such thing as Moscow yet, just to let you know. Russia was Kiev. Now, I'm not saying this means you should take Putin's side of this. Not saying that at all. I think Putin's a punk and Ukraine should be independent. But all I'm telling you is historically, it was Russia before it was anything else. That's, that, that's all I want you to know um, on that. And so pretty much what, what, what you have here is then you have these Byzantine monks. Um, they, they come there and they help them model it again, like what you see in, in Constantinople and its territories. You have this great monastic revival in Russia in the 11th century. Um, and since Russian Christianity follows the Byzantine pattern, we're talking the 11th century. Okay, 1095 is in the 11th century, or was it, sorry, 1054 is in the 11th century. What happens in 1054? The split of the two churches when they formally excommunicate each other. Which side do you think Russia is going to take? They take 
Byzantines side. Um, and so they're, they're going to side with Constantinople. And once the split officially happens, Western Christianity is henceforth known as Roman Catholicism. Eastern Christianity is generically called Eastern Orthodox. But within Eastern Orthodox, you have Byzantine Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox. They all get their own name because they're all autocephalous. Um, again, they're autonomous, yet they're in cooperation with each other. Uh, now, over the centuries, the Russian church will eventually start to assert its equality with Constantinople. Eventually, it will assert its superiority to it. Now, the big thing that is going to get in the way of things and set it back is the Mongol invasions. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about the Mongols. The Mongols are going to wreak havoc all over the world for a very, very long time. Okay, so Kievan Russia will be met with disaster in the 13th century. You have this new aggressive military power called the Mongols under their chief. We call him Genghis Khan, but it's better pronounced Genghis Khan, 1196 to uh, 1227. This was a horde of warriors that was just very difficult to beat. Their use of bow and arrow was way ahead of the time, and they were mounted warriors, and they'd been doing nothing but fighting and conquering for a while. So they conquer nations all over Asia. Asia. I mean, they take all of China, and China was a massive, successful, beautiful, powerful empire, and they conquer it in five years. They then conquer the Middle East. They then conquer Eastern Europe. Russia gets badly defeated by them at the Battle of the Kalka River in 1223. Now, Genghis would have kept going, but he dies in 1227, which halted the advance. But then they return in 1236 under Genghis's grandson, Batu Khan. In 1240, they conquer Kiev and they kill its inhabitants, massacre them, burn it down. They just start murdering people left and right because they do that to send a message. You know, we've taken over, and in the process of us taking over, you've seen how ruthless we could be, so you better never rise up against us. Now, there was an emperor called the Great Khan. Um, he ruled them all, and his name was also Batu. So don't confuse Batu the Great Khan with Batu Khan. That's, I know that is very confusing. Different guys. But <clears throat> the great emperor, he dies. Historians speculate... <laughs> they say that all of Europe would have been conquered by the Mongols had Batu not died. Because again, Europeans didn't know how to fight these guys. And they had the momentum. Europe was not very, um, they just were not in a position to win at this time. Um, and keep in mind, they're still tied up in the Crusades. In fact, the, the, the end of the Crusades, um, you end up both getting the Christian and Muslim sides still fighting in the Middle East both defeated by the Mongols. Um, so they just, the Mongols, they, they were the power that nobody could beat at that time. But because Batu dies, the Mongol tribal leaders have to return to Mongolia. They have to elect a new great Khan. And when they do so, that Khan, I believe it's Kublai Khan, rather than trying to go out there and, and keep conquering, he decides to consolidate what they have. And he was a brilliant administrator. And because he did that, that's probably the reason they last as long as they do as an empire. Now, it saved these guys from getting conquered, right? Southern Russia did get conquered, though, and that would be modern Ukraine. It was southern Russia then, but that's, we call it Ukraine today, and they remained under complete Mongol control for quite some time. Now, there were some princes in northern Russia which were technically outside of this territory, but they had to pay annual tribute to the Mongolians. So this was definitely a disaster. 
the southern Russia, which we would call Ukraine, but it stretches even further east than that, they are going to break away from the rest of the Mongols and become an independent Mongol kingdom called the Golden Horde. They're naming themselves after, after Genghis's army. So when I say Golden Horde at this point, don't think of Genghis's army. Think of this country here. Okay, so right here on this map, like this part would be Rome, uh, Ukraine. Okay, but it even stretched further than that. Um, but Ukraine, what we would call Ukraine, was a big part of that. Um, they declare themselves the Golden Horn, their Horde. They're imitating uh, uh, Genghis's yellow costumes. Their capital was at Sarai near the Caspian Sea. Henceforth, they start being called the Tartars. It has nothing to do with Tartar sauce. They're just called the Tartars because that's the name of one of the Mongolian tribes. By the way, these are the punks that brought the Black Death, bubonic plague, to Europe. It was around the same time they were trying to conquer a European city. Some of, remember, the Black Death started in China and Asia. These guys took some of their corpses and catapulted them into the European cities, which then, it was biological warfare with dead bodies. And that's how they spread the bubonic plague to Europe. I mean, it's jacked up. My hat goes off to them for ingenuity because it worked and it sucked and it killed one, like one third of Europe. But anyhow, um, I was, that wasn't even part of this. So um, when you're a history teacher, you remember a lot of random stuff. Um, so the, the, the thing is, look, the, when they destroyed Kiev, the golden age of Russia Christianity, it was gone. It was gone. Now, you might say, what did the Mongols do to northern Russia? Nothing, because they said, ah, there's too many forests up there. It's hard to defend. We'll just scare these guys into paying tribute. And so they were able to stay unconquered, but they did have to pay tribute. And because southern Russia is now conquered and Kiev was burned to the ground, the center of gravity, the center of Russian civilization moves north. Okay? And so because it moves north... Um, that's where we're going to eventually get Moscow, but let me, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, the Russian Orthodox Church survives the Mongol conquest. Why? Because the Mongols, even though they were pagan, they only believed in one God, and they didn't care what you believed. You could worship that one God however you want, you know? So, and remember how I mentioned in the past, uh, a Mongolian emperor even invited Christians over there? to try to uh, convert them. And one of them, uh, a missionary named John, did convert thousands of them, baptized like 3,000 people. They were open, and they weren't trying to shut your religion down. Um, you know, but, but for the most part, uh, they said you could, you could worship in your own way. So Russian Orthodoxy is going to survive. Um, in, in fact, in southern Russia, which we now call Ukraine, as I keep saying, uh, it was the Russian Orthodox Church that kept Russia culture. And instead of them being completely absorbed and caught into Mo the Mongolian culture, they kept their distinct Russian culture and also uh, the church forbid intermarriage between the Russians and the Mongols. So the Russians stayed Russians, even though they were under their rule for a very long time. But the sad thing is the Russians made no attempt to convert these people. And because they made no attempt to convert them, guess who did convert them? The Muslims. Most of the Mongols in the western half of the Mongolian empires they become Muslim because the Muslims actually tried to convert them and Christians wouldn't. And then when, these, when um, the Middle Eastern Mongols converted, I've talked about one of them in a previous lesson. They start killing everybody who's not Muslim. So it's like, ah, if only these guys would have tried to convert them because Christianity has a lot more to commend it than Islam. But anyhow, um, 
most Mongols politically didn't live in Russia. They were spread out very thin. They became an aristocratic uh, class of overlords. And this is going to allow Russian power under their noses to slowly grow in the north. So I want to talk about that, uh, that new center of gravity. When I'm done with Russia, we'll, we'll, we'll call it. Okay, so Russia's new center of gravity. Prior to the fall of Kiev, you already had in northern Russia this city of uh, Novgorod, which was becoming a very prosperous trader, trading city um, where a lot of Europe intersected there. By 1150, this is again before the Mongols destroyed Kiev, by 1150 it secured both political and ecclesiastical independence from Kiev. Kiev was the center of Russia, but this city is going to become independent from it, even though it's still technically Russian. Then in 1240, Kiev falls to the Golden Horde, Horde, and so what happens? The center of Russian political power moves up to this northern city of Novgorod. Uh, it becomes the guardian of Russia's national freedom and orthodox faith. Now, its prince was a man named Alexander Nevsky, 1219 to 1251. He defeated two Western Crusader armies. Remember when I talked about the Teutonic Knights and in the name of the Pope, they were trying to conquer um, Eastern Europeans and Slavs? This dude destroyed them. So even though everybody was scared of those Teutonic Knights, and those were the knights that had the helmets with like the, the crazy little wings coming off the ears, those guys were terrifying looking. Well, this Russian beat them. <laughs> it beat them bad. And so then Russia ended up staying um, independent of the papacy, and then they paid off the Mongols. They just gave them the tribute. They're like, we don't need to fight the Mongols. They're not trying to change our religion. These papists, they're trying to change our religion. Um, so, yeah, they, they, they will fight the papists, but they won't fight the Mongols, and that's going to keep them safe for a long time. Now, he, Nevsky defiantly dismissed papal ambassadors when they sent him to him. He's like, look, we got the seven creeds. We got the Bible. What do we need you for? You know, and the Pope didn't like that because the Pope's like, I stand in the place of Jesus. They're like, no, you don't. So I kind of like, uh, <clears throat> like Nevsky. Well, anyway, he's going to play a huge role in the rise of Moscow. Moscow was southeast of Novgorod, or Novgorod, and it was in central Russia, protected by thick forests. It had a large population. It was outside of the areas controlled by the Mongols. And so he's going to establish his rule there on behalf of his son, Daniel. Daniel will rule it in Moscow, so the center moves from Novgorod to Moscow, and that will be 1276 to 1303, he's going to expand its power greatly. And then it's going to grow even more, and it becomes called the Kingdom of Muscovy. And that's where we get the word Moscow. It becomes the Kingdom of Muscovy, and its first great ruler was Ivan I. Now, this is not Ivan the Terrible, that's Ivan IV. We've got a couple more Ivans to go. This is Ivan I, uh, 1325 to 1341. He takes the title Grand Prince in 1328, and he starts a Russian resistance against the Mongols. He's the one who first starts fighting back, not in a big way, because they probably couldn't beat them at this time, but little fighting here and there. And because of this, Muscovy becomes the new champion of Russia's faith. Now, Kiev still exists, but it's under the control of the Golden Horde, Horde. but they still let them have their religion there. So you still have the Archbishop of Kiev. He leaves Kiev and relocates to Moscow. 
shifting the center of the Russian church to Moscow. And so this shows that Russian Orthodoxy center is now going to be there. In Moscow, you have a strong alliance between the church and the state. Um, in the mid-1300s, they start establishing monasteries and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, they evangelized some pagan uh, uh, natives that were up in the north that were actually, like, they were Finnish. Um, and so because of this, you get a second golden age of Russian Orthodoxy. But this one is under Moscow's leadership. In fact, during this time, the most famous Orthodox icon ever, if we're going to talk about their culture, it was this one. It was called the Trinity, produced by the Russian monk Andrei Rublev. His dates are 1370 to 1430. This is a painting of the three angels visiting Abraham. Um, and man, theologians, art critics have been trying to interpret this painting forever. Most assume that... Uh, he is saying that the three that appeared to Abraham were Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the one in the center wearing the blue is Christ, because in Eastern Orthodoxy, blue was the color that represented the incarnation. You know, so for the art nerds, they'd probably be geeking out over this, like, <laughs> I blue, you know, but um, that's not necessarily for, for us. Just wanted to let you know, this is the most famous icon in Eastern Orthodoxy. Wasn't produced in Constantinople. It's produced in, in Moscow. Um, let me see how much more here. You know what, what I will do is I will stop there. Um, and then next time I'll just finish with Moscow's political independence. Um, let me just say this because it's going to be a couple weeks before we have another one, another lesson. Um, and I'm, the next one should be the final lesson, but anyhow, um, so you have the center of Russian religion and Russian politics move to Moscow. Eventually, the Mongolians are going to fall, and you're going to now have Kiev try to reassert itself as a, uh, a, a different, uh, separate from the Russian Orthodox Church in Moscow, because once the Mongols are gone, it's going to be Western Christians that go into that area, and it starts off loyal to the Pope. So the church in Kiev is papal. The church in Moscow is Eastern. Now, after a while, the church of Ukraine is going to leave the Pope and become its own independent Eastern Orthodox Church, granted its own autonomy by Constantinople. So you end up with, with Kiev now not being under Russia with its own religious autonomy granted to it by Constantinople, and Constantinople is the one that granted Moscow its autonomy. So now you have these two rival Russias, and, uh, and then eventually it's going to take on its own identity called a Ukrainian identity. And so the Russians ever since then always dreamed, they reconquered it, and then after the fall of the Soviet Union, Ukraine became independent again, and the Russians have always said, no, that's always been ours. This Ukrainian thing is just, um, it's just an anomaly. Uh, and no, they're, they're Russian, and they need to be brought back into the fold, where the Ukrainians are like, no, we have our own history. We've developed our own culture since that time. Um, we are a separate, independent church. Um, in the Ukrainian uh, Orthodox Church is not the same as the Russian Orthodox Church, and it's been that way really since uh, the 1300s. And so you could kind of understand why, 
why they're fighting, why the Russians are like, yes, this should be ours again, and the Ukrainians are like, no, that was a long time ago, and there's enough difference between us uh, then and now that we, we have a completely different historical tract. You guys were never under the Mongols. We were. All this stuff. And so, um, so yeah, just the stuff that we're learning about here is never too far from the headlines, is it? You know, this stuff finds a way of coming back up into, into the news these days. But anyhow, I'm going to stop there. Uh, Luke, if you could kill the stream and then I'll take any questions if anybody has them.